0: Okay, uh, we're talking with uh, Eric Harms, who is the author of a new book called Saigon's Edge, On the Margins of Ho Chi Minh City. Um, This is Dan Tsang with Subversity. Um, I'm talking to you from Irvine, which uh, some writers have described also as an edge city, as an edge city uh, outside of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, But of course, you're talking about a city that is not a suburban paradise.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, Hi, Dan. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm calling from New Haven, Connecticut, um, which is not an edge city, but some people call it an urban uh, wasteland of some sort. Um, So as you can see, some of these categories are uh, quite different um, (laughs) cross-culturally. It's interesting that you brought that up because I, I grew up in Southern California, and one of the things that got me interested in this project um, was probably the process of growing up in a rapidly urbanizing uh, newly developing urban situation, uh, such as it was back in the '80s when I was a kid in san diego um, and it 's as you say uh, places like Irvine they were always these places that were in between the cities yeah in between San Diego, in between l a um, but they weren't they didn 't have a negative connotation in the same way that um, suburban spaces uh, in Vietnam do, and so I became very interested in how, how it was that in Vietnam outer city districts could become seen as these uh, um, very negative places, bad places to live, whereas uh, the places I grew up in Southern California, oftentimes the inner city was the dangerous place to be, and the suburbs were um, the, the zones of luxury and elite living.
0: Is this, uh, uh, what, what geographically is this, um, what area, this area that you focus on, is it north, south, east, or west of uh, Saigon proper?
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, so the place that this book is based on, it's an ethnography, um, which means that it's a, a kind of a social story based on the lives of people who live in Hokmon District, um, which is one of the, the five outer city districts in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, formerly Saigon. Um, It's to the northwest. Um, It borders the famous district of Kuchi where the the Kuchi tunnels are, and it's on the road that leads out to Tainan province, um, which ultimately goes on to the border at Mokbai in uh, in Tainan, the the border to Cambodia.
0: Uh, So northwest. So northwest. Northwest. uh, Yeah, yeah. And the... um, is how far is it from, uh, actually, the, the, like District 1 in Saigon?
1: Um, it's a, it's about uh, an hour, uh, but that's 18 kilometers. But it's about an hour, um, depending about by bus. If you ride a motorbike, back then it would take about 40 minutes. Oh. Now uh, the roads have been improved a little bit, um, and it would probably take you about half an hour if you're driving quickly. Um but again, if the traffic's bad, it can be up to an hour and a half.
0: So, the, so these edge, these uh, developments that are at the edge of the city don't necessarily have to be um, considered bad spaces because, right? I mean, there is a. Mm. This isn't there a condo development south of? Is it south of uh, Saigon?
1: Oh yeah, it's called Saigon South. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also known as Fu Mi Hung,
0: um, yeah, yeah, which yeah.
1: means uh, you know, and uh, uh Prosperous uh, Uh uh, beauty and and wealth and prosperity. Um, It's difficult to translate directly, but it it basically means all the good things you can imagine about a suburban space.
0: Are they selling Um, enough condos there, do you know, uh, that people do? It seems such a far distance mm -hmm. to go there.
1: Well, it's funny you ask about this because Fumi Hung is is the subject of my uh, second project. Ah. Uh, Maybe later we can talk about it. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, but uh, what's interesting to me, and it comes to some of the, the discoveries I made in the process of my research, but importantly, Phu Mì is in District 7. It's a numbered district, and that's a district which is called a, a Ngoi Tang, which means an inner city district. Mm. But Hoc Môn, the site of this book, uh, Saigon's Edge, is located in an outer city district, what they call in Vietnamese a Huyin Ngoi Thang. Tang. Mm. Um, Ngoi ta- and one of the arguments that I make in this book is that the symbolic association of inside and outside, which is also linked in some ways to rural-urban dichotomies, um, has a very powerful effect on the ways in which the material relations of a space actually play out.
0: Is, um, is, is, it, uh, is this, um, I mean, your book, is it really about class? It's about
1: class, um but it's also about the, the way in which uh, spatial relations uh, take on class dimensions. Um, so, for example, uh, the way in which people think about class, because in Vietnam, it's interesting, people talk about wealth and poverty, but uh, probably because of the legacy of socialism, the use of class is still relatively rare.
2: Hmm. So
1: the things that we call class here in, in, in the West, um, we may, for example, use a Marxist framework to talk about class, right? Um, in Vietnam, Marxism is very complicated because of the history of socialism, and people don't tend to use Marxist analysis in everyday mm. life anymore. Um, so they don't talk about class, but they talk about the same things using different idioms. And one of the things that uh, I'm interested in in this book, and I don't explicitly frame it this way, but the way in which space and uh, associations related to space do some of the same things that class do. Um,
0: so, Could you explain more, maybe? Yeah, to let me listeners. explain. Like, yeah.
1: so f- for example, um, the way in which a particular part of a city takes on a kind of identity... Um, and the way in which people think about that section of the city as the home to certain kinds of people, um, then it, it becomes equivalent to the ways in which people have classism or, in other contexts, have racism. Um, you might call it, instead of racism, you call it spacism. Um, so, for example, in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh City, people who live in Ho Chi Minh District are often described as not being civilized, uh, in Vietnamese, they'd say Thieu Ban Minh. The place is described as very ugly. Um, when I told people that I was going to go do research there, they said, well, why, why are you going there? There's, <laughs> there's no culture there. Uh-huh. Um, it's "gay Huan, which basically means nasty. Um, mm. Or when people would describe having to go through Hokmon Mon, it would be like... Um, you know, the ways in which actually uh, Americans might describe going through certain dangerous inner-city neighborhoods or something like that. So, so it's just in, in the same way that in the United States, um, people won't use categories of racism because it's not politically correct to do so, but they'll talk about a certain area of the city um, and it, say, don't go there, right?
0: Is it safe? It's
1: dangerous. Yeah. Not yeah. Safe, right, or right. It's not it, safe. It, when I was teaching at Duke University, Um, the students would say, uh, don't go there because it's sketchy, right? So So they refer to
0: uh, uh, black black neighborhoods or what?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um,
1: You can't say in America that you don't want to go into a black neighborhood. So instead of saying that, you say, I don't want to go to that sketchy neighborhood, Mm, mm, mm. right? So So, this spacism, as you might call it, um, in, many qu- in many ways sort of substitutes for other forms of um, uh, prejudice or discrimination that one might have. Uh, say in Vietnam, you don't talk about class, so you talk about spaces. In the U.S., you don't talk about race, so you talk about spaces as well.
0: Yeah, In your book, you have this example of uh, um, a government official, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, being shocked that you talked to somebody uh, who was wearing shorts. And oh yeah, and you and he described this <coughs> this character as this guy as uh impolite to wear shorts, uh-huh. and you have a whole discourse on on how manners are considered, are viewed mm. in Vietnam, uh, whether whether somebody has manners or not. This, yeah, yeah, or maybe a code word for something else.
1: Exactly, um, one of the things that I try to do in the book is to to look at very kind of mundane interactions yeah yeah and use those as a way to to show how uh, like a, a kind of larger discourse of discrimination based, the way in which um, people from the inter inner city districts um, discriminate discriminate against people from outer city districts and that doesn't come out in sort of official pronouncements or you know direct statements as often as it comes out in sort of attitudes about what these people are like so the example that you you were referring to. Um, uh, a, uh, uh, an official who had very high ambitions for making hokmon civilized, which basically means to urbanize it mm. and turn it away from being a kind of rural margin, um, was very shocked and displeased when he saw that uh, a, a, a farmer on the rural fringes uh, dressed like a farmer for a photograph. <laughs> right, um, because for a photograph you're supposed to dress up and you're supposed to act civilized and you're supposed to put on your best face right? so I used that example which is a very mundane kind of simple interaction um, to show that embedded in that simple reaction his displeasure at this person is a whole host of stereotypes and denigration of rural types um, that continues in Vietnam today
0: And there's an irony in that because the Vietnamese Revolution was supposed to benefit peasants, right?
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. That's what I call the paradox of the peasant based revolution. Um, You know, and I think it's actually a very profound contradiction in Vietnam today um, where, you know, the whole idiom, oftentimes in some ways it was a rhetoric more than reality, but the whole idea of this peasant nation fighting off the big bad American imperialists, um, you know, was very effective during the war. But in the post-war period, where the rhetoric of socialism requires transcending a peasant mode of production, the persistence of the peasantry actually became a kind of embarrassment for um, the, the the government. Um, and so you get this very deep contradiction where... Um, the, the the peasantry is exalted as the kind of the source of all Vietnamese tradition and the, and yeah. the backbone of the Vietnamese resistance. But it's also, uh, in the same token, a uh, uh, sort of other side of the coin is the peasantry is o- often denigrated. They're called hicks, they're bumpkins, they're a sign of kind of lack of civility, etc., etc., etc. There's all these um, films
0: that um, romanticize and... Not, uh, this nostalgia for the homeland
2: right, uh, right. The,
0: the kind of the countryside you know and mm-hmm. the 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 mother and the you know motherhood and the origins of the nation and all that,
1: yeah uh, of course
0: so um, there's a contradiction there
1: yes uh-huh.
2: um
1: and in a sense, that's what this whole book is about is it's, it's one of the it's exploring right the the persistence of that contradiction um The way in which rurality in Vietnam is both seen as a a boon, an essence, um, a deep structure, uh, you know, uh, driving what it means to be Vietnamese. But at the very same time, uh, rurality is denigrated um, and is very persistent. Actually, just recently, um, I was at the movies in in Vietnam at the Megastar.
2: Yeah. And...
1: (laughs) It was very interesting because at the beginning of the of the film, you know how they have those small clips that tell people not to um use their cell phone right. in the theater right there was this um, the way that they conveyed to the audience that they shouldn't use their phone in the theater was they 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 showed this picture of two peasants who were stylized to look you know they were dressed in rags they they' missing teeth and hmm. they were eating um you know, uh, lots of fruits where you had to peel off the the peel off the peel, and they were throwing it all on the ground, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <clears throat> <laughs> and then the peasant, you know, this is a stylized caricature of a peasant, picks up the phone and start, starts talking really loudly. And so they're playing on this notion that the peasant, you know, doesn't know how to talk on the telephone and talks super loud in a very vulgar and crude fashion, right? Um, and then what, what happens is the, um, the, the, the image shifts and the, pe- the two peasants sitting there are transposed upon two people sitting in the movie theater eating popcorn and dropping wrappers on the floor and talking on the phone during the movie. So oh. the implication is that, and this is a huge critique in Vietnam, the implication is that if you're talking on your phone during the movie, you're just a vulgar peasant, huh. right? Right. It's a very deep underlying uh, sort of structure, uh, stereotype of the peasant as country bumpkin that continues today. So this book, then, it says, well, what about a place on the edge of the city? Because Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, it's sort of the beacon of modernity, um, the center where everything's happening. Well, what about a place which is on the edge where it's got basically one foot in the country and one foot in the city? Um, what does that do uh, to these kind of d- these very strong categories that o- oppose the center city versus the rural? And also there's this category of inside and outside, which is very profound in the way in which the city is divided.
0: You know, by um, f- focusing on individuals, you you try to draw out the humanity of people.
1: Exactly. And that's a classic ethnographic method. That's what we do as anthropologists, right? Right, right. Um, you You take big questions and you try to look at them through the lived experience of everyday life um,
0: Can you give some examples for our listeners of the people you actually focused on uh-huh. that might show this contrast uh to the to the kind of stereotypes i guess yeah
1: yeah um uh, so I mean one of the things that I try to do in the book is to i I develop this concept of social edginess right yeah um which what I'm trying to do with the people, and I'll just mention some of the people who exhibit this, right? Um, but social edginess, what I try to do there, instead of talking about people who are marginalized, who are pushed out by structures of power and sort of find themselves flailing helplessly, you know, outside of all opportunity, um, I try to show that people in these spaces are edgy um, by, by what I mean by that is that it's true they are pushed out of opportunity, but they don't just take that and, and, you know, suffer in misery. They transform that kind of position of being on the edge into a position of power as well, um, not, not unlike maybe uh, people in American inner cities who are sometimes pushed uh, to the brink of poverty or despair but also have a certain power um, in the places where they live. Um, they create a cultural response to that.
0: Um, like so like for a,
1: example yeah oh, go ahead
0: entrepreneurs in some way
1: Yeah uh, exactly yeah. So for example I, I talk about um, shoulder pole vendors who who mm. uh, buy uh, who who walk around uh, Saigon selling uh, various uh, snacks and treats um, and many of them live in Hoc not all of them they live in many of outer city districts right yeah. And one of the arguments that I show or, or one of the things that I show is that they play on this notion of being a a country bumpkin as a way to make the sale Um, because that rurality um, comes, although it has negative stereotypes attached to it, it also comes with a sense of purity. (laughs) Um, So if you can pose yourself as a country bumpkin, you can also convince your urban customers that you're actually somebody who's bringing fresh food from the countryside. Um, So... What was very interesting to me is that Hokmon was depicted as this kind of this backwater space, but when people were actually living in Hokmon, they acted just like anyone else from the city. <laughs> but when they went from Hokmon into <laughs> right, right, the I city, remember. the yeah, so-called inner city district, then all of a sudden they sort of played the role. Um, uh, and you saw that not with the shoulder pole vendors or one, but you see it in markets. Yeah. There's a lot of people who... Um, Hokmong is a kind of main distribution center for some agricultural products at the Hokmong market. So there was a fair number of people whose you know, livelihood was based on taking those products and taking them into inner city district markets, um, Thandin market, uh, and Jalan, and other places.
0: Um, um, there actually, I saw a, f- a film or two at the Vietnamese International Film Festival that specifically depicted that. Uh, kind of a relationship on a boat on a uh, like a boat people kind of thing on really? a sampan or something and then they they sold goods uh, uh you know by the road they mm-hmm. would dress up and sell it and then they go back to the you know ship or the uh, not ship but their boat and so really? they would dress up and uh you uh-huh. know and and encounter you know urban yeah. types and then In- sell the goods i i can get you the title i can't yeah, yeah. right now
1: yeah. I mean, in academia, anthropology, and other social theory, we have a fancy word for it. We call it uh, strategic essentialism. Oh, um,
2: uh-huh. yeah.
1: Uh, I don't use it in the book because it's a little obscure in, uh, obscurantist. Um, but what it basically means is people take essentialisms, yeah, you know, essentializing Essential- categories, categories, and they
0: characteristics, make a yeah.
1: strategy out of them.
0: Right, right, right. right.
1: So, like, uh, same thing would happen in the U.S. if. Uh, if uh, people are scared of certain inner-city neighborhoods, um, well, certain people from those neighborhoods, they can play on those fears mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. acting the part. Like I could dress up and really wear baggy pants and really scare the light out of people, and that gives me a sort of sense of control of the situation, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Whereas I may just be a regular old guy who you know hangs out with my family like anybody else, um, but when it comes down to it, because of these categories and these stereotypes are are being deployed against me, I might as well use them on my behalf. Um, So when I talk about social edginess, that's sort of what I'm getting at in Hawkmon is how this space of being on the edge, it has a kind of set of categories attached to it, which come from outside. People don't invent them themselves. But then people, they both resist them and they reproduce those categories because the categories do something for you.
0: How about um, the how about the kids growing up there? Do they mm. have is there anything for them as a kind of a community space or where they? I mean, is there anything in the sense of you know in the U.S. you talk about uh, suburbia being uh, you know a zone where kids kind of rebel and maybe they form their own uh, band or something you know mm-hmm. uh, whatever. And uh, is there anything like that for for young teenagers there? At yeah,
1: all? yeah. I mean, I didn't see too much uh, sort of ganging together and rebelling in, in the ways in which our, our, uh, we, we think of a, with American suburbia. Um, did get certain guys, uh, groups of people who'd hang out um, riding motorbikes really fast. Uh, one of the things that would ha- that you get out in the, the in the outskirts is the rule of law is a little bit more lax. You have a little bit more space, um, so you have these open roads. So sometimes you get these people who are into motorbike racing. But what was interesting is some of, the, some of those situations where they would be sort of associated with the outer city district youth are oftentimes blamed on rural migrants who are coming in and you know, don't know traffic laws or something like that. Well, actually, what was happening was people from the inner cities were coming out and doing all these things oh. in the outer city districts. Uh, so you know, rich kids uh, with fancy motorbikes who have no place to race around in oh, yeah. downtown mm-hmm. Saigon go out to the you know 11 p.m. out in the at the Trans Asia Highway, gone you know open road. That's a great place to race your motorbike.
0: Do they wear helmets or not uh, out there?
1: Back then, nobody wore helmets. Oh right, Vietnam. right,
0: yeah. This, um, more recently, yeah, they, Yeah, but they
1: now were. the the thing what's interesting in Hakmon actually is because helmet were enforced earlier on highways than they were on other roads in Vietnam. Right. Um, Because there's been a helmet law even before... I think it was 2008 when they had the full-scale helmet law. Um, I'm pretty sure it was late 2007, early 2008. um, uh, That's when those helmet laws came into effect. Um, But they already had helmet laws for highways before that. So it's kind of funny, actually you'd get a lot of people with helmets in Hokmon before other places because there's a highway that cuts through. And I, so sometimes people were forced to wear it.
0: I mean, I remember in 2004, I, I had to buy a helmet. And before I got there, I was tried to get helmets in the U.S., and my head is very w- weird-shaped. It's like <laughs> a round-shaped, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't get any here that fit me. But in Hanoi, I, I got one that was sold, a Korean helmet on the street. That it was sold by the street. And I think Asian heads are more round, I think. And so maybe the helmet, the large, extra large size helmet, uh, fit my head better than American helmets. Well, it's because
1: uh, everyone's much smarter in Vietnam, right? <laughs> you need bigger helmets. <laughs> no, I, I, I've never noticed that. Um, but um,
0: It's the it shape like of the head rather than, I think. There's actually a lot of round,
1: stories yeah. about helmet. I mean, someone could do... An interesting essay or paper just about helmets, um, yeah, there used to be interesting things in especially in these outer city district places when they first started enforcing helmet laws on the highways, um, they had these little um businesses that popped up um, where they'd see that there was a police checkpoint, and yeah. so you could rent a helmet
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: you could rent it just before the police checkpoint and then return it right at the other side of it.
0: At the hotels I stay at they they lend out helmets, you know. Yeah. Yeah, when I go on a ride and then I mm-hmm. bring give, give it back to them. Yeah. Yeah. So um so it, it doesn't matter if it fits or not your head. They <laughs> you just try to show that mm. you have one, I guess. Yeah. It's right, kinda right. strange. But um um in terms of uh this highway, uh, was mm-hmm. the idea to build this um, uh, connecting um, Southeast Asia or, or the mm-hmm. roads to to what, to China or what?
1: No, it's a, it's called the Trans-Asia Highway, and I have a chapter about that in my book. Um,
0: but where does it connect era. to? Where would it connect uh, well, to?
1: Yeah, so it was connecting um, from, the, the, it was going all the way to Bangkok and Thailand. Ah, yeah. Uh, so it's going that direction, this particular spur, but actually there is a, a kind of, in the Asian Development Bank right. model and yeah. a bunch of the, the sort of bigger plan planning agents, there are ideas about extending, you know, a wider network of yeah. highways. Uh, there, I think the AD this trans-Asian system also has something, a branch extending up into Laos, uh, going to uh, Vientiane and Luang Prabang.
0: Yeah. Um, NPR, uh, National Public Radio, here just did a show a few days ago saying that China had and Laos had already agreed uh, Mm -hmm. on this extension of the highway or something, and but the Thais want more uh, give uh, or want something more from China before they will agree to 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 this plan, I suppose. China is planning to build this huge highway, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the subtexts. Uh, under all this is the ways in which, I mean, there's some deep geopolitics yeah. associated with highways and the transformation of uh, space and, and and different modes of conceiving of how places are interconnected. Um, actually, a recent book by David Biggs, who's over at UC Riverside, right. um, your sister school, um, it has some very interesting things to say about um, canal digging in the Mekong Delta, but also the way in which that is connected to um, highway building. So, for example, he has very interesting things about how when you dredge a canal, um, some of the offshoot, like the, the the silt and the sludge that comes up off the edges of the dredges, um, they create the, the basis for building the highway. Hmm. Right so it's very interesting yeah. if you look at the Mekong Delta the way in which highways sort of follow these canals right mm-hmm. and then you had a split that he he describes this very well a kind of split in spatial notions of power and controlling the delta where you know the French and Americans after uh, were had a very terrestrial vision of space mm-hmm. and always needed to rebuild broken bridges and you know command space through roads um whereas there, there was more of an, a riverine conception of space uh, among the local Vietnamese and Khmer and other populations down in the Delta. Um, so it's really fascinating to think about how these, these artifacts of modernity, these roads which oftentimes we think of just bringing communication, right, yeah. are really tied into much more deeper um, conceptions of power and controlling space.
0: In your book, you talk about the highway as a uh, bypass, as uh, a way where mm. cars should buy or, or whatever, should, mm. should buy, motorcycles should buy, and they don't stop. So people yeah. can't sell anything uh, who live there.
1: Yeah.
0: Is well, that still true? I mean, do, they don't have gas stations. Is it gas stations? Is it right to call it gas stations? That So you have to make a pit stop or something? Well,
1: <laughs> one way to, for, for listeners... Who might not be familiar with Vietnam? Anyone who's familiar with Vietnam knows that the front of the road, facing the road, right. is prime real estate, right? Sure. If you have a house on right. the main street; you're in business, right? Um, it's a very interesting because I- in in the United States nowadays, um, people who live on the front of the road usually think it's a pretty miserable place to live, right? Uh, sp- yeah, in Los Angeles,
0: they, they don't want the your, noise, so they
1: if your house is near yeah. the highway there's always a gigantic wall that's blocking the highway off from you, right?
0: The sound Um, wall, yeah.
1: Yeah, sound wall, or if you live underneath an underpass, it's like misery at its worst in terms of spatial positioning in the American city, right? Um, Now, that that notion is very strange to a Vietnamese person, at least until quite recently. Uh, uh, In some places it's changing, Um, but for the most part... Being facing the road is is ideal. Um, it, it makes your, your prime real estate. It actually connects you to social life out on the street. Um, and so, what I was interested in documenting here is how you have a kind of shift where you have the the, the foreign notion in in many ways a foreign notion of a road that gets you efficiently you and products from A to B. Right. Um, when that intersects with the Vietnamese notion of the road, where the road itself is the place to be, right, it's right,
0: to, to um, hang, so, hang out to socialize to meet people, yeah, in a way. so yeah,
1: um, you actually have a real crisis in in a sense that emerges when um, these two conceptions of a road meet. Uh, I mean, you could Im- you could imagine uh, there's also some various dangerous possibilities as well. Um, Uh, If you impose a a Southern California-style freeway, now this freeway that I'm talking about, this highway, is certainly nothing like uh, I-5 or anything like that, (laughs) Um, but still it's designed to make cars go fast. It's Um, not as
0: congested, right? So in that sense, it can go much faster. Yeah, yeah. In that sense, yeah. Yeah, But
1: but you still have houses facing the road. Right. Um, and so this becomes a real big crisis for people, and people who used to live across the road from each other, the right. road itself would be a kind of a place a space that binds them actually oh like if you could see of an old road, um, a house on either side of the road were actually bound right. by the space of the road. The so road was sort of like a big giant um courtyard
0: so my earlier point about is <clears throat> are there pit stops that people have to stop or they just zoom through? Now, okay. I mean, there are
1: increasingly – there are a few gas stations and things like that. But it used to be that if you were along a major highway like this, um, every spot was a pit stop.
0: Because of the road? Be- the
1: because road. the because the houses uh, opened onto the road and the houses were simultaneously residences and cafes and, and places so selling like, yeah. water. Right, right, right. So in Vietnam, it used to be if you're going somewhere, basically any time you're on the road – unless you're often, you know, in the highlands or a very deep rural area where there's not that much uh, population density. But anywhere you are, you could stop anywhere and buy a bottle of water. That's true. Stop and have coffee, get some pho, get some noodles, uh, you know, buntit noong or whatever you need, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but with this new form of road, um, there's people who still depend on that kind of uh, livelihood. Yeah, yeah, People who live along the side of the road. Um, but the new kind of road makes you go fast. So when you drive fast like that, you don't stop. You just wait till you get to the pit stop.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. And you don't even look. You just go through, I yeah.
1: guess. You stop at the gas station, and you get all your stuff at the gas station, and then you continue on. So that sort of closes. People who used to depend on the road for a livelihood That's right. Yeah. Um, are sort of... Actually, the road becomes this thing that cuts through their livelihood. Um, but... I, It's ambiguous, right? People are ambivalent about the road. So you could imagine people living in a place like Hokmon, right, where for so long they've been seen as outsiders, disconnected from all that's great about Ho Chi Minh City and downtown Saigon, and, you know, um, job opportunities, great schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the road, in some sense, brings them into Saigon. Yeah, because it's a yeah. faster road, um, there's, uh, there's less dirt and less uh, congestion, um, and so ideally, the good thing about the road is that it connects them. And some people think, well, actually, maybe Hokmon won't be an outer city district anymore. Now that we have this road, pretty soon we might become another inner city district, um, which is a, just a change in name, but it has a very deep and resonating symbolic meaning to people. Um, So you have that. So people are very happy about the road, but at the same time the introduction of this road completely transforms the spatial dynamics of where they live.
0: Are developers going in to try to buy up land and build build a mall there or build something there?
1: Um, There's a lot of developers. Everywhere in Vietnam where there's any piece of land um, within some distance of a city uh, is being bought up by developers like Mad, like mad
0: but um, are they buying ho- houses or, or existing ones they're residents? buying
1: land they're buying hou- uh, like so yeah. people they don't buy houses for the sake of the houses themselves but right. for the land right to
0: tear them down um,
1: yeah and so there the problem with hawkmoon is that spatially it, um, it's a little bit distant Um, So there's all kinds of schemes and ideas about what to do out there and to build things, um, but there's still spaces within closer to the city that uh, haven't been fully developed, uh, so a lot of the investors are focusing on that. But one of the big issues about land development in Vietnam is that um, the people who have the money are able to – To kind of, they have the means to buy something now and just let it sit for a long time. Um, They have too much money, yeah. uh, You know, so you could buy something in Hawkmon for very cheap, let it sit for a long time, and then eventually, as the dynamics of the city change, as as, road infrastructure improves, et cetera, et cetera, um, what used to be this kind of distant outer city district all of a sudden becomes. Um, uh, a, a key part of the city.
0: In the, um, yeah, in the area you looked at, the what's the eth- uh, ethnicity of the of the residents? Are they mostly one one group? Or, um,
1: Everyone's again, Vietnamese, basically. Yeah, yeah. There there are some Chinese Vietnamese, um, but not not too many. Uh, I can't remember the percentage offhand. It's very low percentage. Uh, Uh, And again, in some sense, that replicates uh, the way the organization of Ho Chi Minh City itself, where some of the ethnic Chinese tend to be concentrated around... um, Cholong. No, well, in in Saigon, they're
0: they're
1: concentrated around Cholong, but in Hokmon, they're concentrated around um, the Hokmon Tichon, which is like, I guess you'd call it the Hokmon District Center. Um, mm-hmm. Where there's a market, and, and so in structurally, it's sort of like Jalan is to the rest of Saigon. Um,
0: so the Chinese uh, are more the vendors or the or the yeah or the merchants, the, as
1: merchants as well. and vendors uh, in a classic uh, as you see throughout Southeast Asia in a lot of ways and throughout Vietnam, um, but mostly uh, ethnic Vietnamese, um, a few uh, ethnic Khmer. Um, but for the most part, the ethnic Khmer who live in Vietnam—I mean, who live in Hoc Mon—assimilate um, in ways where they don't identify as Khmer so much as Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Uh, you only mm-hmm. find out they're Khmer if you later, yeah. <laughs> later through a long conversation that twists and turns, and all of a sudden you get that history. Um, How
0: about religions? Um, are they are they mostly um, are Buddhists or some other?
1: Um, most people uh, in Hoc Mon are, uh, as, as most Vietnamese describe themselves, they'll say they have no religion. Right, um, right. There, there's a large number of Catholics, though.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, there's a lot of the, the classic Vietnamese category of no religion, but who are um, Buddhist in the sense that they, they, they pay attention to um, the 15th uh, uh, of the month, and big buddhist holidays they sometimes will uh, pay attention to them sometimes eat vegetarian sometimes not but sometimes mm. just pay attention um or they will uh, engage in you know what what vietnam scholars talk about the sort of the this eclectic hybridized uh, vis- version of spirit religion and uh buddhism that uh, are manifested in things like uh, burning incense outside the door to ward off malevolent spirits and things like that. But people don't call that religion mm-hmm. so much as uh, comment on what they're doing. Um, well, so the
0: practices, I guess.
1: Yeah. They call them practices or belief mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably an outside observer um, would call it religious practice. Um, you have that, so um, the Catholics, uh, a lot of the reason, there's a, there's a fair number of what they call yao tzu, um, which were established in 54, and or mm. give or take around 54, um, when a lot of the Catholics came south from the north um, and lands were set aside um, in places like Hokmon, but also in other outer city districts. see some of those out in uh, Dongnai and Binhua, Um also in uh, Tuda, in places like that. Mm. Um, so, a similar period, there were a lot of uh, migrants from the New- Catholic migrants from the north who were given land on the outskirts of the city, um, and created parishes.
0: So, w- is there a lot of uh, returning Vietnamese, uh, uh who uh, have come back to help in that area or not?
1: Um, not any more than anywhere else. Um, you know. Um, I didn't get a, a sense of any any deep Vietnamese American presence in Hoc Mon, but every every time I would uh, talk to people um you know one out of every five people would remind me that they had a cousin in California or um that they were getting remittances hmm. uh, but I don't have any statistical figures on like what the the degree of Vietnamese American involvement in in supporting life and hokmone was. Um, but there, there were a lot of people who had some kind of connection to the United States in particular, um, mm. California. I remember I grew up in San Diego. I remember there was one family, uh, uh, all their kids had these San Diego T-shirts uh, <laughs> that used to make me uh, a little homesick. And mm. uh, we had some conversations about their friends and family back in San Diego.
0: Did you... Um I mean, uh, maybe a question about your research. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, when you went there, how did you get people to talk to you, I guess?
1: That's interesting. Um, so when I lived in Hokmon, I was there with my w- w- wife now, fiancé at the time. Um, it was, so we were two uh, Americans living in Hokmon. Uh, we rented an ap- uh, not an apartment, uh, we rented a kind of run-down um house uh and and uh, through that process of just living there people um got to know us and um we became sort of interesting to people so at first uh we had two bicycles everyone (laughs) thought we were crazy because we ride around on bicycles instead of motorbikes um (laughs) but we chose bicycles because it was a little slower um if you're on a motorbike uh you just zip by and nobody really pays attention to you. Um, But on a bicycle, you go slow, Hmm. people see you. And so here were these two, you know, young white people basically in in a part of Ho Chi Minh City where there was no foreign presence at all except for the occasional Korean factory manager (laughs) who usually lived downtown and just came out in a chauffeured car, right, Um, living out here. And uh, eventually... Um, when I started doing formal interviews, so one thing I did was I walked along a long stretch of the the Trans Asia Highway, and I stopped at every house wow. and conducted uh, you know ethnographic interviews with people. Um, usually, they'd last from anywhere from one hour to half a day, uh, or the, the people would invite me to lunch afterwards, and sure. then we'd continue afterwards. You know, turn into a full day affair sometimes. Um, Usually after having been in the neighborhood for a few weeks riding around on our bikes, um, by the time when I got there to conduct these interviews, uh, people would be like, oh, I've been waiting for you to come. Who are you anyhow, right? (laughs) Um, I've been so interested in you, I can't wait to talk to you. Um, So in a sense, this idea of just riding around on a bike and being there just made people naturally curious. Um And opened up the possibility for some pretty um deep and long conversations. Um, there was one case, however, I should be you know honest about. There was one case where I remember going into a house and the people said we don 't we don't want to convert our religion. <laughs> we, <laughs> no. I said, no. I said, No, I'm not here. And they said, Jin Dao. No. <laughs> <laughs> <"Hamun chin> dao. <laughs> I said, No, I'm not <laughs> here for that. I, 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 I'm actually atheist. Um, he <laughs> said, Well, we don't believe you. Uh, and <laughs> so that was an unsuccessful interview. Oh, wow.
0: Um, I mean, so they, they
1: were very convinced that I was there as some kind of missionary. Was why oh. else would I be in Hok right?
0: Yeah, that would be probably the expected uh, kind of uh, mm. reaction, I suppose. But that
1: only happened with one p- one huh. one family, um, and
0: uh, was your is your was your fiance also a researcher?
1: Um, she was. She's a, she studies a, a completely different field in the natural sciences, uh-huh. and um, we just decided to go together because it'd be more fun. And uh, in some ways, it ethnographically too. Um, to be there as a um, as a family or a male and a female um, creates a little bit of a more normal presence. Um, one of the problems in Vietnam for a single white male living alone for a long time in Vietnam is people often uh, imagine that you have you're you're looking for a wife or something like that, um, <laughs> which can create kind of strange, unsavory. I'm sorry, I don't know what that buzzing sound is. Yeah. Can you... I don't know. Do you hear it on your end?
0: Yeah, I hear it, but it's not very loud. Hold on.
1: Let me... Adjust. It's very loud on my phone, but... One second. This happens every once in a while.
0: Oh. Should oh, I no, love? it's fine. Okay. Now it's gone.
1: Okay. Um, let me get yeah. back to what I was saying. Uh, if you're a single white male living in Vietnam, sometimes... Uh, topics of conversation can circulate for hours on end about whether you're looking for a wife and all kinds of things that uh, can be a little distracting for research. Um, So being there as a family was actually uh, quite uh, productive um, because it made me more of a normal person in some sense.
0: Were were they willing to have you tape the interviews? How how would that work?
1: Um, I taped a a fair number of interviews uh, but found that... uh, Oftentimes, the the way in which ethnographic knowledge is, is generated, unless you're talking about a specific issue, you say, so what is your income, um, tell me about X, Y, and Z, then a, a recorded interview is quite easy and useful. Um, but oftentimes, when you're just getting to know people and talking about things, um, you you don't record things uh, because you end up having four hours um that circulates over many different issues. So the work of the ethnographer is usually to go back and distill um, after the fact what, what the interesting parts of the conversation were. Um, uh, so yes, I could inter- I could record, but after the fact, most of the interesting stuff came through encounters that weren't recorded.
0: Because you um, were saying, uh, in, at one point in your book, you said uh, some more interesting stuff actually happened after you turned off the tape recorder.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also, there was some, some issues uh, at that time, especially in 2002, 2003, when most of the research was conducted. Um, there was still a lot of uh, surveillance uh, from the, the government, in, in ter- the local government, in terms of being allowed to go out and interview people. Um, so that um, some of the times when I wanted to do formal interviews where I had to schedule a meeting with somebody. I was accompanied by members of the Fatherland Front. Um, And so those recorded interviews were highly scripted and often not that interesting. They were interesting in terms of factoids, um, but not in terms of people's perceptions or attitudes or ideas about life and hokmone, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. But when you turn off the, the recorder... Uh, all kinds of interesting things happen, you know. The <laughs> people from the fatherland front, they start telling you about their ideas and attitudes about the people who live there, or they want to go sing karaoke. They do the strangest things, right? You know, like yeah. after an interview, they want to go sing karaoke or something like that, um, <laughs> and during the process um, reveal all kinds of attitudes about rural life or civility or, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So did um, did uh, you, oh, you also make a joke, I remember, that it was good that there was surveillance because it kept uh, your house from being broken into, I guess.
1: Yeah, yes. Um, that it, it was funny. Um, most of the time, I felt relatively free to go about doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, every once in a while, I bump into this one guy um, uh, who had a, a northern accent, um, but I asked him where he's from, and he said he was from... Saigon, right? Yeah. Um, but he had a very thick, heavy northern accent, like he'd say, uh, Beza, la mesa, Zoe.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, it
1: sounded like a, a northern cadre, right? Um, but then I asked him where he's from. He said, oh, I'm from Saigon, right? Um, and then he would ask these kind of weird, aimless questions that didn't really go anywhere. Um, it took me a while to realize that he was probably, um, you know, from the security office in charge of keeping tabs on me. Um but uh, but I, I tended not to feel that presence too often. But then, towards the end, when we were getting ready to to leave the the area, some of my neighbors were joking um, that when we first showed up, you know, they were like, "Wow, who are these Americans? Right? Uh, these rich Americans moving in? <laughs> uh, I wonder what kind of stuff they have." You know, uh, they were kind of. But then they said, "Nobody dared to break into your place because." Um, uh, the security apparatus had told them that our safety was of the most importance oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so you know there's two sides to that security um but for the most part i felt i was able to do things that i, I needed to do in terms of research um
0: how about uh um yeah in those days when you were sending uh using the internet was that difficult in the early days
1: oh uh, it's interesting um there, I mean, I didn't have internet at home or anything like that, um, so we would go to an internet cafe every once in a while. Um, back then, the internet was big, already big in 2002, but it wasn't quite the addiction that it is today.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Where if you go for three hours without checking your email, you feel uh, like maybe, <laughs> uh, you, you, it's, it feels the same as like not wearing your pants or something, right? Yeah. Um uh, but back then, you know, we, a couple times a week we'd ride our bikes down to this Internet cafe. And it seemed pretty okay, although there was one time where there was a guy in there who was watching all the young people typing, hmm. paying attention to what everyone else was writing.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, he didn't seem too interested in me, uh, but he was more interested in what all the kids were writing on there and, like, what they were doing and who they were writing to and things like that. Um and then I ended up having a conversation with him as a way of distracting him from <laughs> his business. In a sense, so the kids could get a little break and enjoy their email. Um, so, um, yeah,
2: yeah I mean, But it overall,
1: was... you know, it, I have to say, at that period, two thousand two, two thousand three, in many ways, I think it was a, a moment of shift. Um, the early days of ethnographic research in Vietnam, if you read some of the early ethnographies, um, post-war ethnographies, about the early 90s, mid-90s, you get a sense of a lot of things that were off-limits, a lot of things that were, you know, a lot of surveillance, people having to submit reports all the time on what they were doing every day. Um, in my period, um, you had the remnants of that um, where I was supposed to submit reports um, but basically I could send something at the beginning of the week with a kind of, say, I think I'm going to do this, I think I'll do that. Mm-hmm. For example, say, uh, Monday through Wednesday, do interviews, right? Uh-huh. Um, In Generally, like that. But yeah. it didn't say something like, I'll be interviewing Mr. X, Mr. Y, or Mr. Z, and, and Mrs. L, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that seemed to uh, be able to pass muster. Um there, however, when I did say I wanted to do some official interviews with old people to get the history of Hukmon, um that was a little bit more complex. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with, and my book is not a history book, and I think um, uh, there are some interesting aspects of the history of Hokmon, especially in the war, um, hmm. uh, at, because it was sort of seen by many as this kind of hotbed of revolutionary um, activism in the colonial period. That's uh, the place where Nguyen Yang is from mm. who was a famous sort of anti-colonial revolutionary who wrote La Cloche Ville um, uh, published that newspaper um, and during the war um, a lot of people who I, I knew who had, had spent time in Vietnam during the war would always talk about, oh, Hoc Mon, that's that place that's sort of it's V C by night and Republic by day. Right. Um so it was this kind of just as it's halfway country and halfway city, um in that period it was also on the edge in some sense as halfway communist and halfway uh supporting uh, the southern regime. So were there,
0: um, were there strategic hamlets built there during the war?
1: Um there there are some there were some but I, I didn't do much research oh, yeah. about them. Mm-hmm. Um and there were some early collectiv in the postwar period there were some early um collectives uh, uh Sun was a kind of agricultural collective out there um on the border of Hokmon and Kuchi mm. um, so yeah there were some, but it, not too much. It was mostly sort of uh, during the war they called it the vandai Chang, the no land. man's land yeah um Uh, And then in the post-war period, they converted that Vandai Chang into Vandai Sang, right? Uh, Mm So you turn wasteland, uh, it's a classic Vietnamese narrative of converting wasteland into um, uh, productive land. Um, So turning the wasteland of Hoc Mon into these agricultural collectives symbolically was supposed to be a big shift, but in fact it wasn't very successful.
0: So, so why, in your next project, you're focusing on the huh. Saigon South?
1: Yeah, well, so that goes to the, an interesting question that you raised. Um, you know, well edges, they're not all these these nasty uh, sort of in-between spaces, right? Sketchy
0: places. <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: you know, they're not all these sketchy places, right? Uh, and so one of the things in Saigon's Edge, my book, I talk about how Hokmon is very different than um I mean, the the big picture that emerges is very different than, say, an American suburb, which, which is, is oftentimes right. a nice place to live. Um, Saigon's Edge is not really a nice place to live. However, there are these emerging new urban zones, which are, are being built in what scholars like to call peri-urban regions. Um, and the difference between them, I guess the big question that emerges, so why... How are those places different than a place like Hokmon? Um, and one of the differences, it comes back to this issue of inside and outside. Um, Hokmon is definitely considered outside of the city. Um, so in a sense, it's a handmaiden to Ho Chi Minh City. Um, so structurally, if you have a why inside and outside mm. relationship, Hokmon is the lesser pair, which is the noi. Um But a place like Saigon South, which is a, a planned community, um, which it was, you know, has a big master plan, uh, created by Skidmore Owings Merrill, a big, you know, giant uh, urban planning company, um, mm. has been designed, you know, a whole, a team of architects and was spearheaded by a Taiwanese firm. Um, this place, um, differs in the sense that it ha- it constructs itself as the center. Um, So Fumihung is is not an outer city district, and it it never appears in any kind of literature as located in the outer city district. Instead, it's seen as a kind of new urban zone, a new Saigon, or rather than outer city Saigon, it's Saigon South. Um, And in a sense, that, that shift is a fundamental transformation. So in a sense, a place like Fumihung or Saigon South is renouncing Saigon as sort of a lost cause and saying we're going to start over and create our own new urban zone whereas Hakmon is still sort of a satellite in the orbit of uh, you know, a small a small, not even a satellite a small sort of piece of space dust that's attached to the orbit of the main center still being Saigon itself um, Hung is a completely different approach that renounces Saigon and starts over has its own hospital has its own schools Um, gated communities and and all these other Mm. things Um, so there's a logical connection between my work you look at a kind of downtrodden uh, rural urban margin um, and the next step is to say well here you have another place that's on the edge of a city physically um, but doesn't have all those negative attributes so what's different about it how is it possible that you can have these places that are both outside of a city Um, but end up being very different Um, and the difference in in one simple way to describe that difference is that one manages to construct itself as a new center um, and thereby becomes a kind of an alternative to the city
0: and they Um, promote I think they promote themselves to people who work in the city
1: oh yeah yeah I mean it's a completely different uh, conception of urban living, and that's another thing I'm interested in. The, the whole study of Phu Mi Hung is how um, a, a notion of an urban zone um, that has radically different conceptions of space transforms what it means to be Vietnamese. Um, mm. So to live in a Vietnamese city like Saigon, downtown District 1, Saigon, or District 3, or Phu Ngan, these classic um, long-standing traditional centers of the city um, it means to live in a community um, you, uh, your house is either facing the road um, spilled out on the sidewalk or you live in a hem, which is an alleyway and everyone in the hem knows each other's business um, if you're an outsider looking for something in the hem the old ladies will ask you who you are and where you're going um, but if you go to Fumihung, um, there's no alleyways it's all planned. It's all organized. In in many ways, uh, follows a Taiwanese, Singaporean, in some case, in some ways, Southern California model, yeah. um, and the ways in which people interact with each other is very different.
0: You just uh, um, you know park your motorbike and go up to your uh, condo, and that's it. Yeah. You don't uh, associate with any neighbors.
1: And in many cases, you don't ride a motorbike anymore. You drive a car. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, which has implications for the spatial organization of the city as well. Right?
2: Right, it's right.
1: actually funny. Uh, um, a lot of people are buying cars in Saigon these days wow. um, partially as status symbols, right? Sure, sure. Um, and one of in my recent research in Hung, i got to write about this, but uh, it just pops into my head now. Was there was somebody who had this really fancy Audi, um, hmm. uh, an orange Audi sports car, um, who would just drive around in circles all day? Um, basically, because there, and there are a couple Ferraris out there and things like that. You have these fast cars, um, but in Vietnam, there's no place to drive them fast. Oh yeah. Um, so a lot of these people who have these luxury automobiles love to live in Phu My Hung because it's a place where you can drive around. There was you this, can't do that in downtown Saigon.
0: Uh, during this film festival at Irvine, they um, there was a panel of produ- uh, filmmakers. And they mm-hmm. talked about having uh, several cars as product placement in their film. You know, uh-huh. this, this one model, I forget what it was. And it turns out that because of that, everybody went out and bought the cars. So they didn't uh-huh. have any more cars. They, uh-huh. had to, they had to repaint the one car they had to match what they had filmed earlier in the film. Because <laughs> the existing cars were all sold off from the, uh, the PR about the film interesting yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so now they can make films without uh, costing anything because the mm-hmm. the the companies pay for yeah. the product placement so the whole yeah. film is paid for in advance yeah it's, it's crazy yeah
1: but i mean it's all these things are tied in in very interesting ways i mean the spatial transfer. when you have a car uh, you need a place to park it sure um, somebody so to clean it
0: you know you pay somebody you to, to clean
1: it you can't yeah. live in the inner city anymore, if you have a car, right? right. Uh, um, unless you you have a garage that you pay a lot for. Um, so.
0: So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, sorry,
1: my my uh, yeah. children are uh, yeah. coming into the office
0: uh, now. <laughs> I think we yeah we are about time. We actually spent an yeah. hour talking. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. So thank you very much, uh, Eric Arms, okay. um, and good yeah. luck. And so
1: thank you. For the, it was a wonderful opportunity to have this discussion. Yeah,
0: and I hope we um, meet someday, either here or in Vietnam. Uh.
1: And, um, yeah, hopefully I'll have the opportunity to come back to Southern California. Oh, yeah, to Visit yeah, family and come up yeah. to uh, Little Saigon.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. I'll let you know when this is posted. Okay.
1: okay. Thank you, Dan. Nice Bye-bye. talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: So that was uh, Eric Hams, uh, who's the author of Saigon's Edge, On the Margins of Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, out uh, now from Minnesota, University of Minnesota Press, a new analysis of this uh, edge city, uh, in-between city, at the edge of uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. This is Dan Tsang signing off for this online edition of Subversity on KUCI.